Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. When you come back to England from any foreign country, you have immediately the sensation of breathing a different air. Even in the first few minutes, dozens of small things conspire to give you this feeling. The beer is bitterer, the coins are heavier, the grass is greener, the advertisements are more blatant. The crowds in the big towns with their mild, knobby faces, their bad teeth and gentle manners are different from a European crowd. Then the vastness of England swallows you up, and you lose for a while your feeling that the whole nation has a single identifiable character. Are there really such things as nations? Are we not 46 million individuals all different? And the diversity of it, the chaos, the clatter of clogs in the Lancashire mill towns, the to and fro of the lorries on the Great North Road, the queues outside the labour exchanges, the rattle of pin tables in the Soho pubs, the old maids hiking to Holy Communion through the mists of the autumn morning. All these are not only fragments, but characteristic fragments of the English scene. How can one make a pattern out of this muddle? So Tom Holland, that was friend of the show, George Orwell. Um, writing during the Blitz, probably the single most famous um, evocation of England and Englishness ever written. And it strikes me that every single element of it is now utterly out of date. Do you think that's fair? I think that's a bit harsh because uh, he's talking about the diversity of England. Uh, And if anything, England's become, I mean, clearly become infinitely more diverse than than when Orwell was writing about it. And yet I think there is still a sense of what... (sighs) I mean, England still has a, a a place in the imagination of those who live in the country that is called England. Yeah. So to that extent, I think he he is onto something. I mean, obviously, all the stuff about old maids cycling to communion and the clatter of clogs on Lancashire streets. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's that's gone. But plus, ça change. C'est la même chose as Orwell would doubtless have put it. <laughs> he would definitely not have. There was no way he would have put that. I mean, basically, are there continuities? Yeah. From the present through to the mid-20th century when always writing that, that go further back or not? I mean, great question. Well, it's a question about all nations, but what makes it particularly interesting about England is that England is one of the most famous examples of a nation that is not a nation state. So, you know, England has no seat at the United Nations General Assembly. A lot of people who live in England do not describe themselves as English. They say they're British. Uh, but abroad, of course, everybody typically confuses England and Britain, as we often do ourselves, don't we? I think less so, though. So I think that's another feature, is that uh, the sense the English have of themselves within a nation called the United Kingdom has definitely grown over the past decade. It has indeed. I would say. Yeah. And so somebody who's been a great observer of this, Tom, or are you going to introduce him? Because well, you, I yes. believe, have played cricket with him, uh, uh, I guess. I, I have. So a um, few things are more archetypally English than uh, a game of cricket uh, on a summer green. And um, I, pl- I played cricket with Jason on one of the most famous days in recent English history, which was um, the day of the death of Princess Diana. And the game went ahead, but in a rather embarrassed way. So, <laughs> so I remember we lined up outside the pavilion, which had a flagpole, and the flagpole was at half mast. And we all stood there and we didn't really know what to do. So we we took our caps off and twisted them in an embarrassed way, put them on, and then we just kind of shuffled off, which I thought was a, 
I think Orwell would probably have recognised the uh, he definitely the quality was. of embarrassment there. But am I not also right in thinking that you had a, a very a ferocious you were ferociously upbraided by your captain? Yeah. So we then so we then went on to um, to play the match and. Uh, and the captain we haven't even let him speak yet but no, I mean, we, haven't, we haven't even we haven't even introduced him the captain who for, for now will remain nameless his his idea of man management was as i was bowling to yell at me you're losing us the match and the more tense i got the more abusive he became and i knew then that he was destined for great thing and sure enough he went on to edit the new statesman displaying his his ability for leadership and it is of course the great jason cowley one of the the great editors of our age, being at the helm of uh, the New Statesman for how long now, Jason? 20 years? Um, it feels like 20 years. 13, Tom. 13 years. And before that, you were uh, you, great sports journalist uh, at the helm of um, the Observer Sports uh, Weekly when they had that. Yeah, it was monthly. Oh, it was a monthly, was it? And then I, worked, then I edited Granta for a year, a, liter- a literary quarterly. So Jason, finger on the absolute pulse of, of English and, dare one say, British culture. So you've got a book that is, I suppose, in a way, the um, the fruit of of many decades of reflection on the subject yes. of of Englishness and England, called "Who Are We Now: Stories of Modern England." Um, Jason, who are we now? It's it's a it's a good question, Tom, and thank you for having me on the show. It's a, it's a great honour to be on this wonderful podcast, and um, thank you for reminding me of my um, captain, <laughs> captaincy back in back in the day and um, that was actually a, a quintessentially orwellian scene because it was a it was a village called hatfield heath very close to hatfield forest um, in essex and um beautiful late september day if i recall and it was a sort of gentleman and players encounter your brother turned up in an open top classic car <laughs> and a lot of posh oxbridge types appeared alongside you um of which i am not one and then on the opposition were, were a group of local village cricketers and the guy who took a took a liking to your bowling late in the game actually tom you were bowling your your accurate medium pieces and a, and a, a quick, sort of local quick, quick medium quick medium i think yeah, fast lo- medium fast medium the local blacksmith sort of Took, took to them with relish and <laughs> they, they were appearing either over the boundary without bouncing or one bounce. And I think, yeah, that, but, I think but, that, but Jason, I'd lost it in the mind. It's, it's a game played in the mind and you shredded my, uh, my self-confidence with your man management skills. Indeed. I did ask you to be canny, didn't I, if I recall? <laughs> yes, you did. You did. Anyway, um, Dominic began with, um, Orwell Dominic. I think that was from the Lion and the Unicorn, wasn't it? It was, which, yeah. Which Orwell wrote in, began in the spring of 1940 and then, completed as the bombs were falling on on London during during the blitz in in sort of September 1940 and beyond and he likens um England to a an awakened giant in that in that essay but always always worried that England is asleep if you recall he comes back from Catalonia where he fought as a a volunteer in one, in one of the um militias one of the brigades and was shot shot in the throat on the arrogant front and almost died and when he comes back from barcelona where he feels the the republican government has betrayed the um the cause you know, taking their orders from um stalin soviet union and he, he certainly believed that he comes back and the book ends with this wonderful vision of england in the south of england and he speaks about england being sleeping the deep deep sleep of england but he's warning them that the, the English people are about to be awoken by the roar of bombs. 
And I think when Orwell's writing in 1940, he's he's writing about Britain rather than just England, but he uses England. So the what you spoke about at the beginning of the this sense of England being lost within Britishness, yeah, um, or the two being interchangeable. But it, at that point in September 1940, what was bringing the nation together was an, a sense of encroaching threat, was danger. After Dunkirk, Orwell knew what had to be done. The army had to be brought home, and the invasion had to be stopped. And this was a clarifying moment for Orwell. It had always been deeply ambivalent about his relationship with, with England and Englishness. You know, he's an old Etonian, but he hated the public schools. He served as a policeman in Burma and loathed the empire. Um, but he, at the same time, um, he, loathed, he loathed the left, what he called book trained socialism. So here was this very quarrelsome um, and sceptical figure. And suddenly he has this clarifying moment. This, this is England. What is England? And how do we make the nation cohere and come together and find a sense of unity, a moment of heightened peril and danger of a kind, actually, in, in completely different circumstances that we're seeing in Ukraine? You know, a form of Ukrainian national identity is being formed in war as it was for the English um, in 1940 into 1941, which was when Orwell wrote that wonderful essay. So you obviously think there is an England. I mean, your I book do, is, yeah. is all about it. But but Englishness... So so th- let's say 30 or 40 years ago, no one wrote about England or Englishness. I mean, it was a question that simply was never raised, wasn't it? Yeah, so I think um, there's been a kind of weird awakening of um, English, English, Englishness or a sense of English national identity um, and it's intensified since 97 and the election of Blair and the devolution reforms um, and the creation of the Scottish Parliament, when you've also had a simultaneous awakening of Scottish national national identity. Um, so as the Scots have become more confident and more assertive in their, nas- in their sense of Scottishness and their sense of national identity, it's naturally forced upon the, an English, a reconsideration yeah. of who they are and, w- and what they want, particularly as the United Kingdom itself is... Um, in danger. I mean, it's fragmented. And we had a referendum in 2014, which could have ended, which could have ended the union. And Nicola Sturgeon and, and the SNP are powerful, hegemonic, you would say, in Scotland, and obviously want a, a second referendum. So again, it's, it's different from Orwell in 1940, but there is also a sense of threat to Britishness, British identity, and the yeah. union. And you know, it's been a period of enormous change and, and, and convulsion um, in recent years. I mean, if you just have to think about the last sort of seven or eight years with the Scottish independence referendum, the 2015 surprise victory for David Cameron, which then led to the 2016 Brexit referendum, the eruption of Corbynism from the left, um, Trump in America, and, and so it goes on. And meanwhile, you had this, this sense of kind of national populism rising through the influence of Nigel Farage and UKIP. So it's been a period of... Um, extraordinary change and convulsion and upheaval. And somewhere amidst this is is a rising sense of English identity, often identified, I think, unfairly with reaction and loss and nostalgia. But I think one could make the case for a, a, a progressive and positive sense of modern English identity as well within within. The, the greater framework of, of Britishness. Can I ask a quick question about the loss and nostalgia? Yes. Because in your introduction, you say you, you, one of the things you want to talk about in your book is the stubborn notion that Englishness and loss are inextricable. And there is something unusual about Englishness and nostalgia, isn't there? I mean, even when Orwell was writing in 1940, 
a lot of the things he's talking about, the sort of the rattle of pin tables in yes. the pubs, the old maids, they were they were old fashioned even in 1940. And there is always this sense with Englishness, particularly now, actually, when people talk about Englishness, they talk about it in terms of it being reactionary, backward. I mean, you mentioned Nigel Farage, he's often seen as a kind of, as an avatar of a kind of Englishness. But do you think that's, we've got the wrong idea that there is another or, or, or well, I'm the well, trouble with all these things is so hard to pin down, aren't they? Go on, Tom. Sorry. Well, I was I was just going to say about that that one of the reasons, perhaps, for that is that England is, as a political entity, incredibly old. I mean, mm. it's a very you know, as a as a I mean, should could one say nation state? I mean, it, it as a political stru- construction, it is very very precocious. Probably Denmark is its only rival. I was about to say some historians would say it's England and Denmark are the first two yeah. nation states, wouldn't they? And so you think. Um, people are always looking back to the past and saying things were better in the past. So we've done a lot of stuff on the civil wars and people in the, in the civil war are looking back to the Anglo-Saxons and saying, well, they were free then, you know, and then the Normans imposed a yoke. If only we could get back to the glory days of the Anglo-Saxons. And that basically is a trend that, you know, or, or John of Gaunt's great speech. I mean, you, you, you name the passage of Orwell uh, mm-hmm. as, as one of the great meditations on England. But John of Gaunt's speech in Richard the uh, Richard II, Shakespeare's Richard play, II, yeah. where he, he again, you know, he's, you know, this wonderful kind of lyrical description of England bound in by the triumphant sea. And yet there, John of Gaunt again is mourning what he sees as English decline. So it could be that, you know, <laughs> one of the most traditionally English things is to worry that England yeah. is going to the dogs. That is built in. What do you think, Jason? I agree with Tom. Um, I think I say in the book that it, it, there's this sense of something lost or, or, or something something deeper and purer and more innocent that's been lost flows through the English centuries like an underground stream, and I, th- I think it I think it does. And you're, it's there in Shakespeare, Tom, for sure. More recently, it was there in Houseman and his in his wonderful poems. Um, it's there in English poetry. And it goes right back. I mean, I, I listened some weeks ago to your episode on on the Norman Conquest and 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 the defeat, the sense of Englishness being founded upon uh, a heroic defeat um, against the Norman invaders. But even and then, you know, what was lost then? What was what was lost before the the conquest? Going back to an Anglo-Saxon England, a sense after the conquest that you know, here were here here was an elite that spoke French. And the ordinary English English man and woman, you know, didn't they didn't the elites didn't even speak the language that they spoke themselves. So I think I think it's there a sense of loss, a sense of nostalgia, and then of course after the Act of Union, seventeen oh seven, Englishness was lost within Britishness, and we the English were encouraged to see themselves first and foremost as British in this great imperial project um, in which the English played played their played their role as indeed. Did the Scots? So Dominic's right when he said at the beginning that you know here's this nation, but it doesn't have its own discrete um, political institutions, and therefore England in recent times hasn't been given the opportunity to reimagine itself, as indeed Scotland has through the creation of the Scottish Parliament and all of the all of the conversation and debate that has been generated by devolution and what has followed from that. I mean, if you remember George Robertson, the Labour MP, later. Um, head of NATO, said that Scottish um, devolution would kill Scottish nationalism stone dead, I think was the phrase he used. Well, yeah. well that didn't turn out as he hoped. <laughs> no. <laughs> but uh, Jason, this idea that the English perhaps have of themselves uh, as a people who are put upon, who have reasons to feel that things have been lost, uh, and Orwell describes them as a gentle people, I imagine that <laughs> there'll be lots of people listening to this outside England who may feel <laughs> that this characterization is perhaps 
not entirely accurate. I mean, I would imagine within uh, within Great Britain and and certainly within Ireland as well, the idea that the English are you know are put upon a nation of flower rangers, <laughs> cycling. <laughs> yes, exactly. And, British, and, British and, you know, and, and of course, you know, England was the most powerful component of the country that established the largest empire in world Absolutely. history, and the English were not gentle in the Caribbean. They were often not gentle in India. Orwell himself, of course, you know, he was a policeman in Burma, absolutely knew that. There is a sense, isn't there, that Englishness is complicated by the legacy of that, not least because large numbers of people from that empire have now come to England. Yes. And that's, um, I don't think I, I said they were, the English were gentle. I mean, no, Orwell did. I'm, I, yeah, you know, th- th- yeah. And I think there is this idea still people have that the English are a uniquely kind of gentle people. Uh, well, when you watch, well, yeah, absolutely, when you watch something like the Antiques Roadshow on a on a Sunday Sunday evening on the BBC, I mean, there's there's a vision of England that many people wish to identify with. But but of course, go go to Newcastle city centre on a Saturday night, and you see a completely <laughs> yeah. different England. Or or you know, I've spent a lot of time on the football terraces over the years, as as has Dominic, and certainly the England I witnessed in the late seventies and into the early eighties was brutal and violent, and there was an association with. You know, the violence in wider society, what, what one saw on the terraces. Orwell also said that he likened the English to a family with the wrong people in charge, in control. So, that, so again, he was, you know, he was deeply critical of, uh, of the empire. And that's one of the challenges for anyone writing about Englishness today is this contested identity and also the past, empire, slavery, colonialism, um, the tensions within the British state itself. Ireland, the Irish question, and so on. So I think for those on the left, or many on the left, I mean, they view Englishness with deep suspicion. And they're often, as I said at the beginning, associated with reaction, even racism. I mean, the, the internationalist left are, are all for ch- celebrating the, uh, the statehood of others, you know, the Palestinians or the Kurds. But when it comes to English national um, identity, they're, they're very, very suspicious. And it alarms them. I think. I think that's fair to say, Dominic. Would you? I think. I definitely think it. People. Are, I mean, well, Orwell commented on that, didn't he? In the, I can't remember whether it was in whether in this in this essay in the line in the unicorn or whether it was in the road to Wigan Pier, where he Wig- talks Wigan about Pier, yeah. intellectuals who would rather be seen stealing from a poor box in church than standing <laughs> for for God save the king. And I think that that element has has always been there. Not always, surely. I mean, it's it's there, isn't it? In the well, revolutionary period. I mean, that's I was going to say in the 18th century, where it there first are, starts yeah, to appear. The slightly sort of Tom Payne-ish element that, that yeah, England but the is... Whigs, the Whigs. So Fox, you know, basically right. saying the French Revolution's brilliant, uh, yeah. and and Napoleon's brilliant, uh, and and every you know, and essentially, it's not really about Napoleon's French Revolution. It's, it's about his dislike of aspects of of Tory England. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but there is a strain within Englishness. I mean, I don't think other countries have it. I mean, there is a strain in America that thinks that about uh, uh, people who are very anti-American Americans. But I think England is probably unusual in having such a profoundly developed sense of of, of anti-patriotism. And why do you think that is? I don't, I mean, oh, it's a massive question. I mean, Tom, you will be delighted to hear. I think part of it is religious, isn't it? I mean, it's sort of rooted <laughs> yeah. in the, isn't it rooted in the kind of dissenting Whiggish yes, kind of tradition? Is. I think it um, is. And it's obviously also, a, don't you think, Jason, a, a reaction to empire in the 19th century? And it's and then the empire obviously looms enormously large in the, in the, in the mindsets of sort of left-wing English or British intellectuals today, doesn't it? Absolutely. And when you, when you listen to or, or even participate in the debates about um, Englishness and empire, there are, there, 
particularly intensification in recent years, there is, there's almost a sense of shame at times um, about um, the pressure of imperial history on, on weighing on the present. But also I think it's, I go back to the point that it's also a sense of Englishness being lost within Britishness. And in, there's always a worry about national identity, about ethnicity and blood and soil. I'm not certainly, and one of the glories of Britishness, I think, is that it was um, a non-racial, inclusive, yeah. plural identity. You know, we sheltered under this this civic umbrella, um, if that's not a mixed metaphor, um, of Britishness. And you know, more, I would I would argue, um, perhaps better than any other European country, the British have, have, wel- have welcomed migrants since since the Second World War. I know, I know, there was there's been terrible racism and hostility but we the, the modern british state is is pretty harmonious particularly when you compare it with france with with a distinct neo-fascist right we have we haven't had as the emergence of a neo-fascist right in this country but jason isn't there a, a kind of paradox there perhaps that yeah. since 97 certainly the rate of immigration mm-hmm. in into britain has massively increased Yes. Uh, and obviously not just from Commonwealth countries, but from from the European Union. Um, and so the proportion of foreign born children in England has gone up massively. And so you would think that in that period, the salience of Britishness would be all the more important if it is. And I agree with you that it's it's a, it's something that kind of transcends the idea of, you know, ancient national roots far more than Englishness or Scottishness or, or Welshness does. And yet it's precisely the more that, it, that that immigration has gone up, the more the sense of people being English or indeed Scottish has gone up as well. I mean, do you has, think it's, yeah. it's a kind of degree of cause and effect there? I think there, I think there is. I was talking to, uh, there's a chapter about um, the cockle picking disaster on Morecambe Bay, 2004. Yeah. But within that chapter, I, I So that's write, when the Chinese um, labourers were, were drowned yeah, the undocumented Chinese migrants who who were working as cockle pickers, and I tell the story of the lone survivor of that of that disaster. But it happened in two thousand and four, and that was also the year when the EU enlarged and opened up to the eastern states. And I, sp- I was talking to Nigel Farage about this because Farage is a is a figure in the book, inevitably because he's been such an influential politician. You know, one of the most influential post war politicians. And he said to me that immigration and the EU they were not an issue. Until nineteen, and sorry, until two thousand four, and then he saw his opportunity to reopen the immigration debate, which he said had been closed down ever since Enoch Powell had delivered his "Rivers of Blood" speech. When was it, Dominic? End of the sixties. Sixty eight. Sixty eight. That was. So he suddenly saw an opportunity, and he said he was warned by fellow um, big figures within UKIP not to go there. This would be too dangerous. But he said it was never about. For him, it was never about ethnicity or race. It was about numbers and a loss of control. And he was able to min- manipulate that. And don't forget, of the EU member states, it was only the UK, Sweden and Ireland that neglected to mm. impose seven-year transition controls. Yeah. So Germany, France, um, Italy, the other big economies chose to impose the seven-year control. So, so they they wouldn't accept move, um, migrants from the east under free movement rules for seven years. And the Labour government of the time, the very complacent new Labour governments, said they expected around eight eight to thirteen thousand migrants from the eastern states to arrive per year. Yeah, and the true figure was. Hundreds and hundreds of thousands. But, but but what it was, Tom, was the largest unplanned migration, in, surely, in British history. Absolutely. But it's, it still doesn't answer the question of why that hasn't amplified 
people's sense of, of, of identity as British rather than, say, English? Because simultaneously you ha- you've had the devolution reforms. So when Blair came to power, he gave a speech before he came to power in, in, in 1995 where he said, I want this to be a young country. And then he said, we will be a young country. He never spoke about England. He, sp- he was speaking about Britain. I mean, what an absurd thing to say, Tom. I mean, you, you've spoken already about the deep history of England um, and, and, and yeah, the notion of an English, English nation. And Blair wanted us, to be a, wanted us to be part of a young country. In other words, he wanted to will a new country into being and push back against, against the burdens of the past as he would have seen them. And he thought one way of becoming a young country would, would, would be through the, the devolution reforms. But they ignited Scottish nationalism. Is that, do you think, they because... They fired Scottish nationalism. Jason, he didn't understand. I, my take on that would be that he just simply... Because he didn't feel it himself. He simply didn't understand the cultural and political power of nationalism. So yes. it almost didn't occur to him that by creating a Scottish parliament or a Welsh assembly, you would create a focus into which... Well, you'd create a vessel into which people would pour all these energies which had lain dormant for so long. Do you think that's... He just didn't get that? I, th- I think that's right, and and also what he what he didn't understand was there was a there was a restiveness out there in what what you might call deep England, in the shires, the smaller county towns, and the neglected coastal towns. You know, the town I grew up in, Harlow Newtown, for example, where people felt shut out, um, they felt neglected, they felt ignored, they felt mocked and ridiculed by a certain kind of um, elite, and they were anxious about the forces unleashed by free market globalization yeah. inevitably and you know globalization lifted hundreds of millions of people out of poverty notably in china and the transnational elites they benefited enormously from globalization and indeed from free movement but there were many losers and many yeah. of those losers were in the small towns of england but mm. but just to stick up for for tony yeah <laughs> you go ahead tom <laughs> Okay, so the idea of England being a young country, and let's let's focus on England rather than Britain. Yes, yes. We've talked about its its antiquity. Yes, the the sense that, that perhaps that foreigners have of England is indeed of um, ancient monuments and tradition and beef eaters and all that kind of paraphernalia. <laughs> yes. But since the Second World War, England has quite successfully reinvented itself as a young country to the degree that it is probably you know head for head the most influential proponent of youth culture in in the world swinging london punk raves all all that kind of malarkey <laughs> you sound like a high court judge tom <laughs> i know but that, but, it, but it's all been part of the, the of the english brand and you could say that in a sense london for instance which is the english capital as well as the british capital is is definitely a young city or it has you know seen itself as being a young city but london doesn't feel like an english i mean i don't want to sound farajist but well, i don't you, want to sound farajist <laughs> london feels british but i, I don't think you would okay. go to london and say this feels like right, the I agree. england of deep england no of course it doesn't of course by definition because because l'angleterre profond you know yeah. is not london i mean that's the whole point that's okay. the whole point of it but it is i think uh, you know, it, it focuses again this question that I'm kind of just chipping away at, yes. which is it does feel like a Brit. You know, it's the British capital. It's a British city. It's a city full of 
black British, Asian British, yes. Irish British, you know, all these kind of different permutations of British you have. But it's difficult. It's more difficult to attach those labels to English, black English, Asian English, Irish English. I mean, it's it, there's a kind of hint of paradox almost there. So why is it that with the amplification of immigration, with absolutely the sense that London is now not just, you know, it's it's not just a British, it's not just European, it's absolutely a global city. Why has that Britishness, the quality of Britishness, slightly been occluded by the by the growth of Englishness? I mean, it does seem a, a slight paradox there. It does, but it's but it but it's because so many people, I think, feel shut out from that Britishness, that sense of modern Britishness that you've rightly celebrated, Tom, you know, the modern London that you and I know and love. There's a lot, there's a sense that that isn't the country that many, I'm, I'm thinking in particular of many of those people who were attracted by the rhetoric of Farage in particular and, and UKIP. They don't feel attracted by that modern cosmopolitan London Britishness, and nor do the Scots actually. I, I remember um, I can't I can't speak for the whole of the Scots. But I remember Alex Salmon. I invited him to come down to London to give a lecture during the 2014 um, independence campaign, and he likened London to a dark star, sucking the energy forces from the rest of the United Kingdom as it draws more and more people to London. But I said, Alex, hold on here. Um, London also has some of the most impoverished boroughs um, in the in the country. You know, there's deep intergenerational inequality and poverty in London. Um, you know, it's it's a wonderful, diverse city. It's a city of really in- interconnecting villages. I mean, there is a deep history of London, Tom, that you you, you understand and well know. Um, as you as you walk the streets of London, one 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 is haunted by the ghost traces of what, what what has been before. You know, my father came out of the East End and always used to speak very fondly about the old Jewish East End that um, exists almost today as a kind of in ghost traces, as, as it were. W.G. Zabold wrote about so so beautifully, I think, in Austerlitz. Um, so the, there is a paradox, and this, these are the these is, these are the paradoxes that I'm trying to work away uh, at in in the book as I try and understand you know who we are today, you know what is England, yeah. um, and and what 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 these huge huge forces um, have done to the, to the country in recent times. There's a wonderful line from the line in the Unicorn, such a great essay. If you if you want to think about these questions where Orwell says it is of the deepest importance to try and determine what England is before guessing what part England can play in the huge events that are happening. And that's really what the question that's informed the book and that, I, that I've attempted to answer, not with any certainty, but I, I play with some of these paradoxes, Tom, that you're, you're, rightly, you're rightly raising. Let's take a break now. And when we come back, we will play with more paradoxes. <laughs> <laughs> and continue and, uh, Dis- and continue deeply disturbing <laughs> continue our search for England and that will be England gone the shadows the meadows the lanes the guild halls the carved choirs there'll be books it will linger on in galleries but all that remains for us will be concrete and tyres that was the ever cheerful Philip Larkin <laughs> writing, I think, back in the 60s. Um, and Jason, one of the things that strikes me about England is that the English are famously animal lovers. Uh, they love their countryside. And more people belong to uh, wildlife uh, support groups than in any other country in the world. And yet we have some of the most, you know, we, we, we're one of the most environmentally depleted countries anywhere. Um, we, we, our biodiversity is in a constant case state of crisis. I wonder, England is actually quite a small country 
is there a sense that the rising population in England is generating these anxieties about wither England simply because there isn't actually that much of it and that the more people there are, the more it will turn into concrete and tyres and the more kind of hedgehogs and hedgerows will vanish. What is the population of England? Is it about 58 million, 57 million? The population of the UK is almost 70 million and England is by far, I mean, it's about 60 million, I would have said. And it, and it is a it is a it is a relatively small small landmass and a small a small country and I think that's also one of the anxieties that drives the debate about the British Union. If 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 Scotland was to become an independent country, then you know, England or British Britain would lose or England would lose so access to so much of the territorial waters and and, and the landmass. I think Scotland's about a third of the of the of the island of Great Britain in size. But yes, Tom, I think a lot of a lot of people I think associate England England and Englishness with with landscape, particularly the countryside. Yeah, green and pleasant land. Green and pleasant land. Yeah. Um you've you've got Lark in there. I meant I mentioned Houseman's beautiful poems earlier, the elegies, um Wordsworth, the romantic tradition about which Tom you've you've written so well, particularly about Byron. Um, although he liked to wander the Alps, didn't he? Rather than, yeah, the, Co- he, rather than the Cotswolds. He alongside- cleared out of England very I was about quickly. to say, Tom, you say about Tom writing about Byron, but isn't, doesn't your Byron turn out to be a vampire, Tom? Is yeah, it? he does. <laughs> yeah, he does. He's, he's a rootless cosmopolitan, the very worst kind. <laughs> but there is, a, there is a constant pressure on, on the English landscape. Um, one sees these debates around some of the small rural towns which are being built around. And they, I think the phrase is donated by new modern estates. And at the same time, young people say, we, you know, we need somewhere to live. We need, we need more housing. And it's, again, it's one of the tensions that defines the country today. Um, you know, I don't, I, I, I'm not, anxious about a rising population in many ways i i kind of welcome that sort of boisterous clamorous exchange of ideas and individuals you live in you live in brixton tom so you obviously relish, <laughs> yeah, you relish city life dominic is a rural man out in the cotswolds exactly I live, yeah i live in a very bland um <laughs> suburban town so i do live in brixton which is kind of almost the archetype of of the inner city but i i grew up outside salisbury you did well, yeah. I, I want to feel that those green fields are still there, but that's the, that's where so much of this countryside stuff comes from. So yeah, I was thinking when Jason, towns, when Jason was talking, one of them, one of the, I mean, it used to be famous. It's not famous anymore. But one of the politically very famous iterations of that was Stanley Baldwin in the nineteen twenties, very much a friend of the show. Uh, England is the country, and the country is England, yes. or the other way around. I can't remember which. But he did that at precisely the moment when England was becoming very suburban. You know, yeah. his was a message craft ribbon people, developments along kind of yeah, things. listening yes. on radios in new suburban developments who wanted to believe that there was a you know their house is called the larches or something, um, but as you say, they live they they can't see any larches, uh, and I think that is doesn't that explain England is one of the most densely populated countries in Europe? I think only most Netherlands, and, yeah, yeah yes. Netherlands and Belgium, but absolutely, and you you also saw. A reworking of of Baldwin and indeed George Orwell in in some of John Major's speeches late in late in his premiership, where although indeed another Brixton boy, but well, he but quoted, Ma- didn't he? The uh, the old maids riding to communion through mists, all that kind of stuff. He did, and shadows stretching across county grounds, and there was a sense of this kind of rural idyll again. But that plays back to our original idea of something something that's lost, something we had, and something we've let go. Has been taken away. It's an anxiety that that specifically goes that goes back to the industrial revolution, I guess. Yes. Um, at the more England becomes urbanised, the more salient 
the natural world, the beauty mm. of the fields, the wildlife, all that kind of stuff becomes. I mean, people may not necessarily go and see it, but they want to know that it's there. And um, one other thing, Jason, that you mentioned in the first half that I wanted to come back to, because you talk about this quite a lot in the book, and I know, and, and I know you, you've written brilliantly about it in the past, is football. So football is one of the most famous English exports and football is central to England. I mean, actually football, a lot of our listeners are not um, British and they may find this frivolous or mystifying. I, I would argue that football is probably the most single most important vehicle of Englishness. And you talk in your book about the England, about the England football team and the, for example, the black players. Um, so there, surely there is an example of how you can be. I mean, Tom said black English. It, it's true. It doesn't sound, it doesn't trip off the tongue as readily as black British does. But there are clearly, I mean, some of the great icons of Englishness, Raheem Sterling is a good example, are, are black, aren't they? Indeed. And, um, I think, I think the England football team is a mirror in which we can see the, the see the changing face of the nation. Um, I think football is, is, is a real, it's a, it's, a, it's a signifier of, of, of so much, but particularly of national identity. I remember um, going to the England-Scotland match at Euro 96 at Wembley, the famous match where Gascoigne flipped the ball over, was it Colin Hendry? It was Colin Hendry, And yeah. slotted home, glorious goal. Beautiful, warm, sunny day in London. And when I arrived at the stadium, I remember being absolutely shocked to see so many flat the flag of St. George everywhere. Whereas if you look back at footage, say, of the 1966 World Cup at Wembley, which was England against West Germany, Bobby Moore's great team that won, won the World Cup, the, the crowd, everyone's got the Union flag. Even the World Cup mascot, um, the tournament was held in England, wears a little um, Union Jack vest. I think it's a, li- a little um, lion where, wears a Union Jack waistcoat or vest. So, back, so the, the iconography of Englishness was actually British iconography. But suddenly something happened around the time of Euro 96, a year before Blair is elected. And it's not a top-down, state-directed um, process. It's, it's something that comes from below. And one of the means through which it is expressed is football and the, the English national football team. And for a long time, particularly the 1970s, late 1970s into the early 80s, English football, the English national football team was associated with hooliganism, but particularly sort of far right factions, racist factions. And there was some terrible violence when England went overseas. I remember there was a great goal that John Barnes scored in Brazil, um, England, Brazil in, in the early 80s. I think John Barnes, the, the, the black winger who played for Watford and then Liverpool, he scored a wonderful solo goal. And some of the thugs who had followed England to Brazil said England had won the match 1-0 rather than 2-0 because one of those goals had been scored by a black man. I mean, a monstrous comment to have made. But fast forward to the present day, particularly what we witnessed last summer, um, Euro 2020, but delayed by a year because of the pandemic. And we saw this kind of wonderful flourishing of English national identity as expressed through the English football team, with many of our leading players being being black English players. And they, they, they were very comfortable embracing the flag of St. George, wrapping themselves in the flag of St. George. Uh, Rashford himself identified very strongly with a sense of a benevolent Englishness. And I think England are very fortunate that through these years of polarisation and upheaval and turmoil, they've had Gareth Southgate as their coach, who's an extraordinarily thoughtful man and has thought very deeply about um, English national identity. I think at the time of the 2018 World Cup in Russia, Southgate said that we, the English, had been lost, a little bit lost in our identity. 
And I hope through my young team, because of their youth and their diversity, we can offer another another vision of Englishness. I mean, Theresa May wouldn't say that. Jeremy Corbyn wouldn't say that at the time. But Southgate leaned into the debates around Englishness and identity. And then just before the Euros last summer, he wrote an essay on, which was published on the Players' Tribune called Dear England, which was an attempt to address, Tom, the, the controversies around the Black Lives Matter debate and his team taking the knee. And he located himself in, in a tradition. His, his grandfather had served um, in the Second World War. He spoke about his love of the Queen, of the monarchy, um, of, of the military, but at the same time spoke about his embrace of more oppressive, uh, um, progressive causes. And it was a fantastic essay, I thought, and, and wonderfully argued. And what he was basically saying was diversity and tradition can go together. They don't have to be mutually exclusive. and One can inform the other in positive and constructive ways. And I think Southgate's England have done more than, more than mo- most to unite, unite many behind the sense of progressive Englishness, I think. But Jason, a slightly more jaundiced take on the mirror that <laughs> football holds up to England hmm. would surely be that, that, that for most fans, uh, and I'm aware that both of you are much keener fans than I am, but I would guess that um, clubs are much more important ultimately than uh, perhaps uh, the national team. And those clubs, there's the idea that um, jumpers for goalposts, local boys growing up, going through the, the various squads and then playing for their local team. I mean, that's the kind of the fantasy that um, club teams embody. And it is a complete fantasy, as as you well know, yes. because basically the club, particularly uh, the, um, the, the absolute elite clubs, are basically, as we've been seeing very recently, ways for various kleptocrats and <laughs> oligarchs to um you know to, to to wash their 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 dirty linen in a way football is the embodiment of everything that the little man out in the out in the the provincial town feels about globalization that everything that you know everything that was local is now a, a kind of a tiny cog in the great churning machine that is globalization well just to jump say? in before jason i mean that isn't that what that super league f- Fiorori, yeah. which was an extraordinary moment. I mean, such a, a huge story for a few days. That didn't, isn't that what it encapsulated, Tom? The idea that yes, something so. something profoundly English had been hollowed out and was about to be lost, and and the local was about to be utterly crushed by the kind of by this idea of an yeah, elite, it did. a sort it of did. a plutocratic but, but that, elite. But but also, I mean, it, there was a match when um, Chelsea played Newcastle just after Abramovich had been sanctioned and. Yeah, Johnson was about to fly out to Saudi Arabia to to beg him for more oil at the same time as um, you know eighty one people had been executed in Saudi Arabia, and the, the the sense that you know these two great historic teams with their devoted fan bases were both the toys of these kind of terrible people mm. was I, I thought a kind of quite sobering moment. I think so, Tom. I think, I mean, the clubs, certainly at the highest level of the Premier League, the, the Premier League is kind of the, one of the ultimate expressions of let it rip, rapacious, free market globalizations. But what the clubs themselves are, are kind of vessels of continuity through time. They embody traditions. And that's the appeal, isn't it? That's, that's the appeal. The, of them. You know, that's the huge appeal for, for you know, so that I would guess the Premier League is one of the things for which England is best known today around the world. I mean, everyone in China knows Manchester United and Liverpool. But that's also why the, the national team matters, because um, it's separate from the clubs. You know, it's not owned by a, a, a golf autocrat or a Russian, um, what are they called, oligarchs. 
Um, Hobsbawm, Eric Hobsbawm, the historian, said, said something I like. He said, the imagined community of millions seems more real as a team of 11 named people. And you see that too in cricket, Tom. I mean, you're you're a great cricket well, fan. Okay, so what? But but Jason, what I'd say about that is that um, I mean, pretty much every country has a football team, has a yeah. national football team. I mean, you could say that about Italy, you could say it about Germany, you could say it about Spain, you could say it about Brazil. I mean, you could say that, that countries across the world. Yes. Is there anything particularly English about supporting your national team? No, but what we're talking about is how the England team is an expression of the changing English nation. And it's it's a contested identity. I think we wouldn't be having this conversation if we if we if we didn't believe it's a contested identity. And football has been one of the, the English football national team has been one one of the means by which we have grappled yeah. with this contested identity and also begun to un- understand how the nation has changed and who the who the English are today. Um, you're right, Tom, when you said at the beginning, some of my black friends, particularly in the 80s and 90s, were very uncomfortable about um, blackness and Englishness, and they would they would um, describe themselves as black British, first and foremost. That was a distinct identity for them. But what we've seen in recent times, delightfully in my view, is, is, a, is a black English identity um, developing. And I think that's all for, all, all for the good. And I, wel- and I welcome it. Can I change the focus a little bit? So yeah. we started with Orwell, who, I mean, yeah. he's, he's, he's politically so hard to pin down, but let's just say for the sake of argument, at least initially a man of the left. You edit... Um, a magazine that's traditionally been seen as left of center magazine. And for as long as you have edited it, I think you have run stories. I mean, I've written, I wrote one of them myself about the left and Englishness and the problem with Englishness about the knee. I mean, people were arguing about this with the so-called blue labor moment at the beginning of the 2010s. Um, and you talk in the book about the sort of the death of a kind of labor England. Do you think there is a kind of way back for the left in England and kind of with England, I suppose, or because of course, there are, as we said earlier, there are so many people on the left for whom the very idea of England and Englishness is is unsettling and they don't like it. Um, so how do they get that back? Yes, I think I think it's, it's a huge it's a huge challenge for the left and particularly for the Labour Party because the Labour Party was once so strong in Scotland, um, where where indeed it was hegemonic um, in the 2015 general election. Ed Miliband went into that election with 41 of the 59 Scottish seats at Westminster and came out of it with one, the SNP 156. I think from which there is no return for Labour. I think the progressives in Scotland, many of them are now are nationalists and they've, they've embraced um, the SNP, not least because the SNP have power and are in control of the money um, and all the institutions that, that are built around power and government um, are now... With, with the nationalists, so you know what does Labour have to do? Labour has to Labour has if Labour is ever to win a majority again in, in in the United Kingdom, it has to start winning in England. But what we saw at the last general election, in particular, was a huge rejection of the Labour Party in many of its traditional heartlands, in the north of England, in the Midlands. You know, it can't it, it loses in Essex, where I'm from. Um, I don't think there's a single Labour constituency in e- Essex. Um, but if it's ever to start winning again, it has to reconnect with many of its traditional voters, um, though, those who want you know, Labour. The Labour Party was founded to represent the Labour interest, organised Labour. But it was always an uneasy coalition between organised Labour and what you might say the, fa- the Fabian or Hampstead intellectual. The prune juice drinkers. Uh, yes. <laughs> Um, whatever you call whatever you call those people, they founded the New Statesman in, in, in 1913. <laughs> yes. um, but that coalition, if not 
def- definitively broken, it, it is fractured into multiple pieces. And Labour is very strong in, in the cities, in London, in Manchester, in Liverpool, uh, in Cambridge, in Oxford. It's, it's strong among the educated um, urban middle class and very weak um, everywhere else. And that's not a stable coalition to win. I mean, one of the things that does strike me about England, and I think you could say Britain more generally over the past 10 years, I mean, we, it, it's been clearly been a very, very convulsive, turbulent exhausting period Mm. uh, and very upsetting for a broad range of people for all different kinds of reasons. But I think you could also say that it's, it's been an affirmation of the commitment of England and Britain, perhaps more generally to, to principles of democracy, because what we've seen is how turbulent democracy can be. Yes. We have had two existential referendums. We've had one on the very makeup of the country that we live in and we've had another on the the most significant foreign uh, affairs context with, within which britain had operated and we've we have had referendums on both and we have abided by the results on both and also however uh, much criticism one might level at our, our parliamentary system and the first past the post it, it it has facilitated the articulation of some quite kind of radical positions. So whether that's the SNP in Scotland, whether that is Nigel Farage, who you have cited as as perhaps the most influential political figure um, in recent history, even though he's never been an MP, or Corbyn and um, you know, giving a voice to the further reaches of the Labour Party on the left. So couldn't you say that in a sense, although things may look bleak for Labour, there's still all to play for because at the moment we, we're on such a roller coaster we don't quite know where we're going to get to. Yes, I think all of that. I think expect the unexpected. Um, I think the reason Brexit was such a shock for the the cognitive elite, to use a, a David Goodhart phrase, um, was because it was so unexpected. Orwell, in in that in the essay we, we've cited um, throughout this podcast, uh, uses a phrase about the elites receiving a tug from below when ordinary people are heard. And they were certainly heard loud and clear um, during that Brexit referendum. And it was such a shock. You know, it swept David Cameron out of power. It brought Boris Johnson ultimately um, to, to 10 Downing Street. And it, and it was an exercise in, in democracy. Am I being um, overly nationalist if I say that actually uh, other European Union countries had referendums on similar issues? And the, uh, when the electorate delivered the wrong result, they were told to go and vote again. They were, they they were told to go and vote again, indeed, which was, which was w- what a lot of um, ardent Remainers wanted, didn't they? They wanted, they wanted the electorate to think again and, and they wanted a second, the second referendum. But the, to, to decide such, a, such an important fundamental part of British foreign policy, in other words, membership of the European Union on a, on a single bi- bi- binary plebiscite, as as David Cameron did was was an extraordinary exercise in risk taking, wasn't it? Well, it this... was, it was. But it, but again, as with as with the uh, the Scottish referendum, it, in a sense, these were commitments that had been made by parties in general elections, and so therefore you could say, well, it shows that British democracy is working because you know Farage was obviously the spokesman for a vast constituency of people who were not being represented by any of the major political parties, and yet British democracy served to give a referendum. Just to give a sort of more historical spin on that as well, isn't there something I, I always think when you look back at the politics of the last, what are we talking, sort of seven or eight years, 
there's something very 18th century about it all. It's rumbustious, it's boisterous, it's often been very vulgar and very, um, there's been bad behavior on all sides. There have been demonstrations. Um, but, but, and even the nature of the arguments, you know, does, is Britain yeah. exceptional or is Britain part of a Euro, a European community? And town and country. Town and country. Yes. I mean, these are all, yeah. and the sort of the clash of temperaments that people like Robert Toombs, the historian Robert Toombs talk about, the dissenting Whiggish, um, sort of middle classes and the sort of, the, 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 the sort of, Toryism, the kind of the kind of Doctor Johnson, John Bullish side of of Englishness. I mean, that all of that would be instantly recognisable to somebody in seventeen sixty or seventeen seventy or something. Don't you think? I do, and um, as would as would the, the sense of a, a, an open exchange of ideas. Uh, you know, the coffee houses and the, free, the the boisterous debates that took place um, in the taverns and in in the public prints. And I think it's been an extraordinary period. And Tom's right; it's been a, it's been turbulent, it's been boisterous, it's been unsettling. unsettling. We've been deeply polarized. And you know what comes next? That's I think that's the the question. What what do we have ultimately, Tom? A second referendum in Scotland? Does the Scottish national question return to break the British state decisively, or will it be will it be indefinitely delayed? I don't I don't, I don't know. But it's I don't think this period of um, Turbulence well, my, is over. I mean, my feeling is, is that if, if the, the nationalists can't get past 50% at the moment, I can't see them ever doing it, to be honest. But In the polls. We, time will tell. Time will tell. Dominic's point about the 18th century is an interesting one. Orwell, in, in his essay, says, what can the England of 1840 have in common with the England of 1940? But then, what have you in common with the child of five whose photograph your mother keeps on the mantelpiece? Orwell says nothing except you happen to be the same person. Yeah, I love, and that. That's, love that. Passage. I love that. And I think that's what interests me and what I've attempted to explore in the book is this sense of a changing changelessness. You know, what, is, what are these continuities through time that connect the English present with the deeper English past? And what, what, that's, that's why I'm so interested in the, the interplay of paradoxes that we, we touched on be, before the ad break. And I think something about changing changelessness yeah. defines who we are today. So it really is plus un change, as John Bull would put it. <laughs> <laughs> Jason, thanks so much. That was a, a brilliant tour de force. It was. It was wonderful. And Jason's book is Who Are We Now? Stories of Modern England, and I can't recommend it too highly. And it makes you proud to live in a country full of paradox. <laughs> thanks so much, Jason. Thanks all for listening. Bye-bye. 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 Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hi, Rest is History fans. If you want more Tom Holland in your life, and frankly, why wouldn't you? I have some good news for you. I'm Emily Dean and I'm thrilled to say that this week Tom is a guest on my podcast, Walking the Dog, where you get to hear well-known faces at their most relaxed because I talk to them over a leisurely outdoor stroll with my dog Raymond. And you can join us this week for a very special two-part in-depth chat with Tom Holland. And yes, I'm afraid I did ask him this question. Tom, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? I think about it a huge amount. In fact, there are days where I barely stop thinking about it. 
my brain is occupied by the Romans. It's like gall. If you want to hear more of my chat with Tom, give Walking the Dog a listen this week. And while you're there, you can take your pick from episodes starring the likes of Ricky Gervais, Jack Whitehall and Jimmy Carr. What's that, Raymond? Yes, The Rest is History did do an episode all about the greatest dogs in history. No, you weren't in it. Most spoilt dog in history, maybe.